Our sermon text reading is Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with our reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we would ask for eyes to see and ears to hear the glories of your word. And Father, we would ask also that we would leave changed as a result of our exposure to the eternal word of God. And I pray, Father, that you would be pleased with what is said in the next few minutes. And we ask, Father, for your grace and your mercy. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> we'll be looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses uh, 25 to 29, which was read for us by Andy here just a couple of minutes ago. And I want to bring you back up to speed. I know that by now all of you know exactly the context of the book of Hebrews and all that sort of stuff. It was written to a small house church of Jewish Christians who were living in a period of history when things were going south for Christians. Uh, the persecution of the Roman Empire was beginning in earnest and they were just a couple of years away from what we'll call lethal persecution under the Emperor Nero. So the writer of Book of Hebrews, whose name we do not know, uh, wrote this letter to encourage these folk not to be sidetracked, not to go back into Judaism, which was a great temptation for them, but to stay the course and run the race of faith that God had put them on. And so out throughout the letter, there were a lot of comparisons and contrasts made. I mentioned this last week that there were comparisons and contrasts between the Jewish system of law and the new covenant under the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a comparison and contrast between the Levitical priesthood, the system of priesthood under which they had grown up, and then Jesus as the high priest. And there was a comparison and contrast between what I'm going to call the seen world, the visible world, the world that they could see in temple worship and in sacrifice and in the priesthood, and what had been promised through Christ, which was yet unseen, the kingdom of God, his priesthood and his kingship. And throughout these comparisons, these folks are encouraged to stay the course and to run the race. So now I'll begin the talk on these few verses. 
I don't know that you noticed it. It's awful hard to pay attention when scripture is read and to catch the flow of the words that are read. In that short passage that Andy read for us, the word shake or shaken was used five times in a, the span of three short verses. Text is a little bit longer, but within that text, in those three verses, the word shaken or shake was used five times. So a preacher that's paying attention should probably say, I should say something about shake or shaken. In 1971, I was living in Southern California and there was an earthquake of 6.6 magnitude. It was called the San Fernando earthquake. I don't know how many of you have been through an earthquake. It's a, an interesting experience. During the San Fernando earthquake, 65 people were killed and $505 million worth of damage was done. Now I realize that 6.6 .6 is not as big as earthquakes come, and some of you may have experienced a larger earthquake, but, but it was an eye-opening experience for me at 4.42 in the morning or whatever time it was. It was sometime early in the morning. And the disconcerting thing about earthquakes is this. There is absolutely nothing that you can do. And this is what I mean. You can't run away from it. You can't put up, uh, pick up a bucket of water and try to put it out. Um, a fire you can run from. A flood you feel as if, if you can get to high ground, you're out of danger and so on and so forth. And if it's a plague of locusts, you can go inside and shut the door and the window and probably be just fine. But an earthquake is just singularly humbling because you cannot get away from it. And a myriad of questions go through your brain all at the same time. Am I safer inside or out? The answer is you really have no idea. Getting in the bathtub or under the desk may sound like a great idea in principle, but it does not stop the shaking. And if it's a doozy, it's coming, and it's going as long as it wants to go. And so it's very disconcerting, and it is one of the displays of God's power and authority that really humbles mankind, because there's absolutely nothing that he can do. Andy, a few months ago, went to Haiti uh, to help with uh, relief from an earthquake that was suffered there. And they suffered tremendous devastation. And there was absolutely nothing that they could do. It had absolutely no impact on us here in Buena Vista, Colorado, or North America for that matter. But to those people, it was absolutely devastating. And believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about earthquakes. I studied that this week. 27 times in specific earthquakes are mentioned in the scripture. And there's one unique feature about all those mentions about earthquakes. God was in control of every one of them. So it's kind of a display 
of God's power and authority to mankind that you can absolutely do nothing. And I am in control. Now, in our text, I mentioned that uh, being shaken or shake is mentioned five different times. I won't bore you with all the details, but there were two Greek words uh, in our passage to describe shake or shaken. Four times for one word, one time for one word. And that one singular verse uh, is a quote from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, which we read as uh, the opening call to worship this morning. And, and it comes to us from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And, uh, but in all five instances, the word means the same with one variation. Whether the two Greek words are used, it means total oblivion and destruction of everything. And the quote that comes from Haggai adds that it means not only total destruction, but any authority and power that man believes that he has will be destroyed along with material things. Does that make sense? So in our text, while shake or shaken is used five times, it leads the original readers and us to believe and to think about total destruction. And so you ask yourself, how does the concept of total destruction of everything help me run the race and the course to the end? That kind of destruction is not very encouraging, is it? Nor is it easy for us to imagine now, some of us who have been through some of those earthquakes and seen some of that destruction can start to get a glimpse of it, but total destruction that comes from the voice of God where nothing is left is very difficult for us to understand. But let's look at the text very briefly. Let me start at verse 26 and then we'll look at the beginning of verse 27 to just get a picture of what is going to be destroyed when what is being spoken of here occurs. Verse 26 says, At this time God's voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, and then it goes into quotation marks, and this is this quote from Haggai, Chapter 2, yet once more, says God, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, he goes on to explain, yet once more indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. Now we have the definition of what is going to be shaken and destroyed. Everything that was ever created. Nothing is going to survive when God's voice is once again heard at the end of time and his earthquake shows up, so to speak. Everything that was ever created is going to be destroyed. Now, if I was a hellfire and brimstone guy, this would be a great jumping off point, wouldn't it? I mean, I feel like pouring sawdust down the aisle because this would be a great kind of opportunity to give us that. And, and it is not going to get missed 
today, really and truly. At the end of time, God promises in the book of Haggai, here in Hebrews, that his voice is once again going to be heard. And not only is the earth going to be destroyed, but if you noticed from that quote in Haggai, so are the heavens. The heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed by the quaking voice of God. Pretty interesting. Run the race. Run the course. Stay to the end. God's kingdom is waiting for you. Why would words like this be an essential words for the people of God to stay on course? I can tell you one answer now that struck me very hardly this week. And that is, I do depend on what I can see. And my reliance is there. And most of my effort and most of my energy is spent running to protect what I can see. I mean, that's reality. But the writer here, quoting God through the Old Testament, tells us that God's voice is going to be heard and that which is created, both in heaven and on earth, is going to be obliterated. And if I'm honest, I have to ask, how well is my time spent then if my time is spent on what I can see? That's a humbling question. So now we know what is going to be shaken and what is obliterated. So where's the hope, one might ask? It comes to us at the end of verse 27. This is going to happen so that in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There it is. So that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Well, Dave, that's terrific. Writer of the Hebrews, that's spectacular. What are the things that remain that cannot be shaken? It takes us back to the parable of Jesus the kingdom of God is like this, a man who built his house upon the sand. When the storm came, it was washed away. The man who built his house upon the rock, it was unshaken. So, so by inference, we know that we're talking about the kingdom of God. And from our text last week, what were the writers told to run toward? Verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That is our home. That is where we are told we are residents. The kingdom of God. The earthly kingdom. The place where God resides and the Lord Jesus Christ sits at his right hand. 
that is where we are running toward and that cannot be shaken. Everything else is going away. So really what the writer is doing is forcing his original readers and us to ask very sobering questions and they're the same questions that come up over and over and over in the book of Hebrews. Is your confidence in what you can see or is your confidence in what you cannot see that you are still running toward? I mean, that's really a very valid question. And I'll be frank with you, and I'm being really honest and, and I hope terribly transparent here. I don't ask that question often enough. I, I really and truly don't. Because my eyes are so focused on what I can see. And worried about building up the foundations of the things that I can see. But God has been pretty consistent. What is seen is all going to evaporate. So that what is unseen and unshakable remains. And I wonder how devastated I'll be when the quakes start to come again. You know. But what is the response to this? fascinating response that comes to us in verses 27, I'm sorry, 28 and 29 of the, our text. If you look with me there, it says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as a result, or and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, I was going to start the talk this way this morning, but I was afraid it was going to sidetrack us. When, don't answer this out loud, please. When you think of the word worship, what do you think of? What are the things that come to mind that quick? Don't answer. I'll give you five seconds to think about it. I know what comes to my mind. And our talk today will not be on worship other than to introduce the idea because to be really frank with you, my concept and much of the church has a really bad idea of what worship is and what it, what it should be or what it must contain. For some, it is the style of building and it must contain certain components. And I'll be honest with you, when I walk into those buildings, I really like them. I'm, I love nothing better than an 11th century cathedral. I really don't. I love nothing more than a pipe organ that is bigger than this room. I love nothing more than carved oak pews 
of hands of people that have run over it for five centuries. I love that. I love music. You can always tell I love music. If you watch Lori when she's playing, if she smiles or laughs, I'll tell you why. It's because Dave is starting the hymn when he wants to, not when it's supposed to, or because I'm writing my own words to the hymn as I'm singing it, and she can hear me, and I did it twice this morning. And so she was in deep glee, but I love music, and, and I think of music as, as part of worship. So we think of places, we may think of people, we may think of music. And interestingly, up to this point in the book of Hebrews, every time the word worship has been used, except for one, it has been used in reference to the old Jerusalem temple when it talked about worship. And so, so the writer's mind would have naturally drawn the peoples to where you and I think when we think about worship, right? We, we think about a place, or we think about music, or we think about people. We think about formulas and styles and, and maybe worship teams, whatever that means. I don't know. Um, and, and so their concept of worship and our concept of worship may have been similar, thinking in the same ways, but the writer here introduces something radically different. And I want to explain why. Now, I know I'm taking a little bit of time here, but it's important because it's going to bear into the next three sermons. Okay? It wasn't until the 13th century that our Bibles started having chapters and verses and punctuation. Okay? Now, they're terribly helpful to us when we're reading, and they're super helpful to preachers because he can say, turn to verse 13, turn to verse 24, and that kind of thing. But oftentimes when we have chapters and verses, it chops up ideas and thoughts. So the response to this shaking and our security in, which is, in that which is unshakable is to offer up to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, and we just are left there with our ideas of what worship should look like, right? Except the writer continues. Without chapters and verses, it reads like this. Let us offer up to God what is acceptable in worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Don't remember those who are in prison. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let your life be free from the love of money. Remember your leaders and those who spoke God's word to you, and the list continues. All those things are tied to the idea, let your worship of God be filled with reverence and awe. What we're going to find is that that list that begins in what we call chapter 13 are what the writer of Hebrews is going to describe as part of worship. Isn't that extraordinary? You see, he's introducing an entirely new idea. 
There's a new comparison and contrast between the temple and the temple worship of the Old Testament, which they are not to return to, and what is true worship under Christ in the kingdom of God, which cannot yet be seen. And worship is going to get redefined. Music will be a part of it, but it's a small part of it, believe it or not. And it is no more nor no less important than showing hospitality to a stranger or the sanctity of the marriage bed or how we handle our money in the here and now. Isn't that extraordinary? And that's what you get to look forward to on Christmas morning because I am going to do that. Isn't that great? But the shaking up of the universe and the destruction of it and all that is left is the kingdom of God and the people's response is to be worship in reverence and awe, what we have is this glorious picture of what worship of God through Christ looks like in the here and now. How we handle our money how marriage is dealt with, how we handle hospitality and strangers, what we do with our money and so on and so forth. All these, quote, unseen things that bear into the unshakable. Because God is a consuming fire. Now the question that I'm going to leave us with and answer as well is who said all this? I mean, that's an extraordinary bit of business in a a few short verses. The entire universe is going to be destroyed by by the shaking of God's voice. The only thing that's going to be left is the kingdom of God, which is unshakable. You are to worship God in awe as a result of that. That's a lot, Mr. Writer of Hebrews. Who said this? Was it you, Mr. Writer of the Hebrews? Not that I'm going to disbelieve you, but why should I take it seriously? Look back with me at verse 25 of our text. See see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He's making that comparison and contrast again between the old covenant that we saw at Sinai last week and the new covenant, which is Zion, the kingdom of God where Christ is speaking now. God gave you this warning in the old and it was ignored by and large. And look what happened in ancient history among your own people. How much more if you ignore the voice of God now? The Lord Jesus is speaking from glory and saying the only thing that matters is what is unseen because it cannot be shaken. I know it's the same old tune with different words. But there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. 
And I can really think of no more time more germane than right now. Because for me, this may not be your experience at all, but for me, what our environment does to this season demands that my eyes focus on what I can see instead of focusing on what I cannot see. It demands that I focus on what can be shaken and destroyed as opposed to what is unshakable in the kingdom of heaven. So, dear friends, we have one chapter left in the book of Hebrews, and the writer is saying, stay the course. Run the race. Everything that is created both in heaven and earth, are going to be destroyed. Fix your eyes and worship well and give praise for that which cannot be shaken. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And I pray, Father, that you would grant us eyes to see that which cannot be seen, and a focus on what cannot be shaken. May we attend to the business of running well the race that you have set before us. And as we expand our understanding of worship in the next couple of weeks, may we better worship you to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.